Welcome back to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. Um, I'm your host, Chris Ward. I'm incredibly excited to share this episode. Um, we are catching back up with Adam Casey. And if you haven't heard Adam on this podcast before, I highly suggest pausing it right now and going back and listening to his previous two episodes um, because we're kind of telling a story, like a tale, <laughs> the tale of Adam, uh, because he's lived quite a bit of different phases of his life. And his life has taken twists and turns that uh, at times are very difficult. Um, we talk in this episode, he he had a very extreme, intense uh, experience with cancer. Um, and I think it's important to listen to a story about, about the unexpected and really kind of learning some of the lessons or trying to understand some of the lessons he's learned along the way. Um, so really in this episode, we talk about his experience uh, being diagnosed with cancer, his experience going through chemotherapy and kind of the downward spiral he found himself in right after chemotherapy and then ultimately this super bizarre incredible event this horse race through mongolia that you know kind of gave him some sort of purpose and some sort of event to work towards um and kind of help him along his way and along his journey um one thing i love when i get to talk to adam is I could like legitimately just listen to him tell stories for hours and hours. And the thing you guys don't get to experience that I get to experience is so far all three episodes, we've gone on at least an hour and a half run each time beforehand. And we've just chatted away the whole entire time. So there's, you know, like five hours of podcast you guys don't even hear um, of conversation with him. So I love that. I think it's amazing. Uh, I really enjoy training with him, going on adventures, and then coming back and and listening to all these fascinating, inspiring, at times hard to listen to because it's your friend and you don't want you don't want to have to hear about times your friends went through hard things. Um, but talking it out is part of the healing process. So uh, if you haven't listened to the other ones. Uh, Number 30 was the first episode he was on. And then number 40, 43. So I highly suggest checking those out before you listen to this one. So you can kind of know um, kind of the background and previous discussions. Uh, or you could listen to this one and then kind of like memento your way back and uh, and check out those ones knowing where he is now. Um so yeah, so thank you, Adam, for coming on the show. You're an awesome dude. I like I said, every time we get a run together, I absolutely love it. So, so yeah, man, I can't wait till our next uh, training run and all that fun stuff. So, anyways, uh, this is going to be the Like a Bigfoot episode number eighty-seven with Adam Casey. Enjoy, guys. <laughs> All right, let's check. 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 Is yeah. that what people say? <laughs> there is it, there the on being podcast. She always when they're doing a mic check, she always has them 
say what they had for breakfast that day as a who check. wait what podcast is that on being with krista tippett i swear to god my wife told me the same thing she's like i listen to a podcast and they have they say what they ate for breakfast yeah if you listen to the unedited version she always whenever they're doing whatever mic checks beforehand she always says why don't you tell me what you had for breakfast today and it's always so uncanny <laughs> sometimes persons you know will say well i had this tomato basil you know concoction with whatever kind of flatbread the other person's like i haven't eaten in two days <laughs> <laughs> what what have you had for breakfast today see today was coffee that's I, it well you what you saw me just ate yeah it is technically my breakfast because i still do the intermittent fasting mm, okay and, I, and it's like 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock now right so you and, were... I, and i stopped eating last night at uh, i think around eight o'clock sometimes i just i don't i know i don't strictly do like a 16 on eight hours or 16 off eight hours on kind of thing but i definitely try and at least space 12 to 14 hours so yeah if i, if I stopped eating at eight last night and it's let's say 11 right now Math in public. That's <laughs> we both just failed at math hours. in public. Fifteen hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, but I did have quite the healthy dose of coffee. <laughs> That's what you gotta do, man. That's that what you gotta do. C. <laughs> um, let's see. I'm just gonna start going then. Okay. Let's kick it. If you want to move that, maybe a Is bit it still closer. Up? Yeah. All right, there we go. I'll just get in this really <laughs> awkward position <laughs> <laughs> so I could. Talk into the uh, yeah. talk into it. All right, man. I'm here with Adam Casey, and he's laying on a couch, <laughs> lounging, drinking coffee, lounging, and we just went for a run. I feel like that's how we start our podcast. That's how it should be. Is we just we've just gone for like a ten mile run, pretty solid in the mountains, and yeah, we smell bad, and now we're going. I don't know about that. Well, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I I change clothes. It's <laughs> true. I'm sitting here in the sweaty t-shirt. I I I had the wherewithal to change clothes. There's there's no more embarrassing feeling than when sometimes when I go skydiving and I realize that I haven't put on deodorant that day and I'm sitting on the plane just crunched in like sardines and you're in the way, you know, you're sitting in a plane, you've sometimes got your arm up around the person next to you or yeah. you're holding on to something <laughs> and you're and you are the guy who just smells. <laughs> and especially when it's someone's first time tandem. And you're like, hey, welcome to skydiving. <laughs> skydiving. I hope you're getting a nice dose of this armpit. Yeah. I'm sure you shelled out $250 to smell my armpit right now. Really sorry about this. I had that in a yoga class recently where I my workout shoes that I go to the gym in, yeah. they smell very badly. And I was just like, in the, it was early in the morning. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to put these shoes on. No socks. <laughs> like, no socks on the shoes. And I wore them for like 10 minutes and that smell just <laughs> sunk into my, into my feet. And I got to the yoga class and, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm in child's pose with my head's <laughs> by my feet. I'm like, oh my God, this is bad. When you smell yourself. Yeah. When you smell your own BO. Yeah. You know you've crossed that threshold when you've basically insulted everyone in like a 10 foot radius of you. Exactly. Because you know that they're getting twice the dose that you are. Yeah. <laughs> Do you ever look around and you like try to blame it on someone else? <laughs> Is he scanning the room? Like who Who's a victim? <laughs> who can I blame this on? <laughs> who looks like a smelly person? <laughs> I, I think I, I definitely have. I, I, but I just, I don't know how you'd pull that off. Yeah. Because it's your BO. 
That's true. Well, especially with the armpit. Yeah. When it when it when person. it's your bo. Yeah. I feel like it's best just to admit it. Yeah. And simply apologize. Like, I am so sorry. I ran out of deodorant. <laughs> I swear I'm an adult. <laughs> I swear I am old enough to know that I need to put on deodorant. Yeah. <laughs> One of my friends, his uh, his qualification. I think it's his brother's qualifications for being an adult. Is he's like, he's like he's like he's like I realized I was an adult when I went to the store and I was able to buy two things of deodorant <laughs> like one for now and one for the future. He's like I was planning for the future. I had enough money. I was an adult. <laughs> That's a good statement. I think mine. Given that I'm back in school and I'm around a lot of nineteen twenty year old yeah. kids. Honestly, they're kids who like to think that they're adults because they like to espouse their views on injustices in the world, uh-huh. which they're totally entitled to, but it's heavily one-sided at this age. My standard of adulthood for them, at least, is do you know how much your Netflix accounts cost? <laughs> because if you can tell me what your Netflix bill is, then, that's a, then I know that you're at least somewhat of an adult. Dude, I don't know if I qualify as an adult in your, in your <laughs> qualifications here. Are you some, are you mooching? No, I'm not mooching, but I don't know how much I pay. Well, st- okay, but there's but the, oh, the like you're mooching, like you're taking someone. The implication that gotcha. you're paying your own Netflix bill, or you know your yeah. own Netflix bill, is that you're paying it. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to that makes sense. Yeah. You know what? Maybe I'm an adult because I have some friends who are mooching off of mine. That's exactly allegedly. You know what? You're you're the real MVP. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I've like gone past adult. I'm like grandfather now, <laughs> basically. You're the wise old man shelling out Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> uh I was just imagining a wise man on a mountaintop giving his Netflix password. Just <laughs> disrupting the algorithm of, of Netflix by constantly watching the most boring documentaries. Totally. Totally, man. Uh, but yeah, man. So welcome back to the show, even right, though I'm at your house. So it's weird to be like, welcome back to your house. <laughs> but uh, Thanks for letting me back into my house. Yeah, man. I Dude, it. I love hanging out with you, though. Like, I mean, in all seriousness, going for runs yeah. and just chatting the whole time is really awesome. And unfortunately, you're a super busy guy and I'm a super busy guy. And so we haven't been able to make schedules meet up. It's OK. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll we sync up. And we touch base, and we ping each other. There, yeah, there we go. There we go. That makes sense. Uh, But yeah, man. So welcome back. And you know, I I would love to like just kind of continue the journey and the story. Yeah. um, That you've been telling on the podcast because we've done two previous ones, and you know they've both been really fascinating to me. And like obviously you've had to overcome a lot um, to get to where you are today. Absolutely. like I said, I think trying to think of where we last left off. You told this insane story about going into work and trying to like tough it out, tough out being very ill, mm-hmm. and then basically realizing at that point, like, oh, I have something very serious going on. Yes. And you're like crawling on the ground, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yes. Very true. Yeah. And if you're a fan of The Office, there is this scene where Kelly in the later seasons she talks about she's doing a one-on-one interview with the camera 
and she talks about how she never gets sick except for that time when she was six and she was in the hospital for two years. Oh my God, <laughs> man. And, and so for me, I like to think, yeah, I don't generally get sick yeah. until, until I get cancer. Until you got super sick. <laughs> until yeah. I had cancer. Yeah. But yeah, so I was walking, I was crawling around on, uh, on this specific morning before work. Cause I was still in the military. Um, trying to just tough it out trying to tough out what i thought was basically very bad ulcerative colitis symptoms and um not embellishing at all like it was i was actually just crawling around on the ground trying to maneuver putting on clothes crawling down to my car which was underneath in a carport of the house um and you know, really just thinking, how am I going to make it to work? Once I, not even trying to think about what's going to happen once I get to work. Yeah. Like, I just got to make it to work first. <laughs> once I make it to work, one, it'll all be okay. <laughs> one problem at a time. I'll, yeah. I'll deal with this one crisis at a time. Yeah. Really, I I don't want to say I was in so much pain because I don't, I don't want to be too dramatic about it. But I, I was in such a delirious state that crawling around to put on my clothes and as I'm, because I'm, I'm driving to work and I, did, I developed this routine over the past couple of days to actually alleviate what was, what I thought was going on inside of my stomach by just purging myself and gagging myself. And so I stopped to pull over two or three times on the drive to work to basically gag myself into throwing up so that I, because I thought, again, I'm just having really bad, cl- there's something inside my body I need to get rid of. Yeah. And purging would, would do it. And so... When I, at no point though, does any of this seem wrong to me. It just seems like what needs to happen. Which is from an outsider perspective, I'm like, yeah, there's obviously, this isn't right. But from your perspective, it's interesting how we can like trick ourselves and fool ourselves into thinking this is normal. You know, I just have to get through this. Because I I think I've, if I had, if, if I could use the best analogy, you don't need to have broken a bone to know you broken a when you break a bone you don't need to have broken something before to know in that moment okay this just broke for me at this point what i was feeling was something i had never experienced before but it was also something that i had never i couldn't relate anything to yeah so i didn't have any prior experiences through relationships or friendships or anything you see on tv where somebody's having to do these things so i'm just thinking like okay this is just me and and right now my job my only my only job right now is just to get to work. You know, again, big bad marine, gotta gotta step up. So, I mean, when I get to work, I, I'm really just no work, no better off than when I left. And I'm I'm sitting. I, I go to my desk, um, give myself the pep talk in a car. To, you know, hey, suck it up. Time to you know you're a marine infantry officer now. Like, don't be walking around all week. So I get it. I walk into the office, the our building, and I'm just uh, kind of hovering over a desk, trying to use the desk as some form of support because I feel like I'm about to pass out. And I'm, but I'm also, and I know that if I sit down, I'm actually going to pass out. So I'm yeah. thinking, okay, I've just got, just got to make you know, weekend at Bernie's. I got to make it look like yeah. I'm doing, <laughs> doing something. And so. Um, well, while I'm doing that, 
my one of my commanding officers, my XO, he walks by, just sees I'm in absolutely no condition. Like it has to be obvious to everyone else that I, I, I'm I'm standing and I'm 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 leaning against my desk and I'm panting as if I had just finished this ten mile run going uphill. I am just out of breath, and so yeah. So he notices, um, and then you know there's a back and forth, and I would like to say that I was this heroic like. Oh, I'm totally fine, sir. Don't worry, you know, GI Joe. And it was, are you okay? You know, he says, are you okay? My reply, I don't know. I feel awful. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know, just and so yeah. very, uh, very quick determination that I was not okay and that I needed to go to medical. Um, things accelerate kind of quickly from there. Wherein, as soon as I get checked into the hospital, I'm definitely immediately put on uh, morphine because I'm at this point just so uncomfortable and again so delirious from the pain itself that they have me you know just sitting in a hospital room sitting on a bed uh however long goes by because like i said i was pretty doped up on morphine and then you know they come in or some social worker lady let's say comes in and you know quick caveat prior to all this Prior to all the military, you know, I worked in research, in a, and and I worked, I, I was a lab tech in a in a research lab for three years, so I was aware of what terminology was used to describe cancer, especially in like papers to yeah. talk about abnormalities and you know uh, dysfunctional kind of lymphatic system, all those things. And so when this lady comes in, and as high as I was on morphine, when this lady comes in, and if at any if at any point you're in a hospital for something so serious, and someone comes in who's not a doctor and has this very, uh, what am I, who who has a very gentle demeanor to her or to them, and they tell you something doesn't look normal, that's really that's a really bad sign. Yeah. So when you she, were conscious enough to realize yeah. that you're like, oh, no. conscious enough to realize that when she says, <clears throat> Lieutenant Casey, uh, your blood work, your initial blood work has come back and it doesn't look normal, and you have that, and that's not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, you know the ensuing the ensuing phrase of Lieutenant Casey, I'm sorry, but you have cancer, and it's not. When that happens, at least for me, because I can only speak for myself, it wasn't this entire walls caving in, oh my God, I can't breathe kind of thing. It was a, oh, yeah, okay. Well, I guess that's what it is because, yeah. you know, you kind of, again, I was really high. <laughs> so there's no breaking that. Yeah. But there's also just a, acceptance and I, w- I guess you could call it shock but basically you i feel like i was told you get told something so serious and there's just you just know there's no recourse there's no way you can go back to 20 minutes ago and change the outcome you just say oh well this is what it is okay and uh you know that's a that's a phone call you never think you're gonna have to make and I, pro- I didn't handle it that well because sure enough, I'm on the, f- my mom who knows that I'm not, be- I haven't been feeling well, who, who knows that I'm going into the hospital at this point. Um, 
I I call her <laughs> in this very doped up state. I just I'm on the phone in this hospital room and I, and I say, "Hey mom, yeah, no, I don't know what's going on. They just came in. I don't know. Someone just told me I had cancer. I'm not sure." Oh my god! <laughs> and then I. And then I just hang up on my mom. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. You're like, can you not, can you give me the phone after the morphine's worn off a little bit? <laughs> and so sure, you know, she calls back and she's like, Adam, and oh, this is just, a te- this is just a testament to how like brave and strong my mom is. Yeah. Cause she calls me right back and without really any emotion in her voice is like, Adam, let me talk to somebody. Yeah. And I, I'm sure she probably realized. Yeah. And, and maybe she's thinking like, no way. And then. Um. You know, I don't know. I've never. This is one of those things where I've only begun to start to ask my parents and some of those around me, like, what was it like to yeah. be told that I was? Because that's because that's what happened. Was you know, obviously I'm still here. Obviously I made it through. But the first forty eight hours were were really hairy in that when at first they they when they couldn't pinpoint the actual diagnosis beyond cancer, um, there were suspicions that it was definitely terminal because at this point it had spread to the, the initial scans, the, the, if you can imagine, um, like a giant MRI of your entire body that pinpoints with fluorescent coloring where the cancer is at this point, it's just, it's everywhere. It's all like, Every lymphatic or every organ in my stomach and pretty much all of my uh, main arteries, I guess, or you know, circulatory path is just littered with these fluorescent lights because the cancer was everywhere. And so they were, you know, they, they, my parents are back in St. Louis and this is happening in North Carolina. And they just straight up tell my parents, like, you need to be on the first flight that you can get out here because. We don't think you're ever going to see your son alive, and yeah, for the for because it was like a, it's either going to be the cancer that I had, which was advanced stage four Burkitt's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, or it was possibility of being like terminal pancreatic cancer. Yeah, and it t- it took forty eight hours or so for that those results to be determined, <clears throat> and so for I'm not aware to any of this. I'm just yeah. I'm at this point. I'm just doped. Well, and it's interesting too. You saying like I haven't even really started digging into what it was like for other people because I mean, man, like that has to take years and years to really process for yourself. Yeah. You know, like processing what you were feeling and how you got through it and everything. Let alone like, okay, now let's start figuring out how everyone else handled the situation. Yeah, yeah. It's I. I I don't want to, I don't want to claim victimhood, but it, it 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 has taken and it's still taking a lot of, a lot of time on my own to really think of what that did to me because I still don't call, even though I'm, I've been in remission for almost three years now, um, I still don't claim the title of cancer survivor. Yeah, um, it definitely sounds too triumphant. Just in, and I'm not trying to take away anything from people that really find strength in that. But for me, it's something where it wasn't as simple as, oh, I just had cancer. 
it was, no, I had cancer. And then the relationship that I was in completely fell apart. And, you know, you talk about going to some really dark places. Yeah. When, you know, when you, when you, when you're holding on to this belief that you're going to make it through because for someone else, partly, and I don't want to, I don't want to put any blame on this individual and make them the, the villain in this story, but they were definitely someone that I talked about, we talked about marrying and for the relationship to fall apart in the way that it did in the middle of chemotherapy when I've lost 70 pounds, when I have no hair, when I, when I'm, when I'm literally uh, labeled as a walking hazard because I passed out one time going from my bed to the bathroom and 10, that was 10 feet away. I actually passed out, so now I wasn't even allowed to go to the bathroom on my own anymore. Yeah, and to have that, and then just to have a very aware, uh, an incredible awareness to a very serious opioid addiction developing right in front of you. You know, when you're well, it's kind of like what else? <laughs> like, it's like what else are you supposed to do in that situation with the opioid thing? It was it, it was it was absolutely an escape for me. It was, yeah. it, and it's it's very Pavlovian where, so I was getting, I think, I I was getting an incredibly high dose of morphine and Dilaudid every single day, um, exorbitant amounts, and it was on a schedule of every three hours that I would get this pain shots and the nurse would come in with with my pain medicine in a syringe and it had a, a green tip to it and every time when on three hours when that nurse came in with that green and I could see and I, I, I can remember I, I would see the green tip syringe and my body would have this physiological response of like yeah. it's time to get high yeah. it's time to you know, and I would actually start to feel you know some of the pre, I don't know, like the precursor neurotransmitters starting to release because it was like okay yeah give it to me give it to me yeah and so yeah so it, and it was it was just it was a flurry of stuff that it's taken me almost three years to really kind of categorize and sort out and admit actually happened and. I think I'm at the point now where I need to stop being selfish with it and understand that so many other people were involved with it and it's only because of them that I'm here and whether or not I'm thankful that I'm here, I need to learn to appreciate them and part of showing them some sort of respect for what they did for me is and you know having these conversations like yeah it's a, yeah it's uncomfortable asking your mom like hey so what was it like to be told that I had cancer that I was probably going to die yeah like what was your reaction yeah <laughs> that's a hard conversation it is a hard cuz <laughs> it brings up the emotions again yeah. you know like you don't I, it's even hard for me to ask you these <laughs> questions cuz I'm like I don't want him to have to relive this yeah you know would, what i mean well that's the decent thing about this is that it's it is therapeutic to 
you know, you know, I, 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 I yes, I am sitting on a couch. And <laughs> I have a book open. I have yeah. glasses on. You are wearing. I'm a, writing notes. You are wearing a suede vest or a sweater vest. I am. That's why uh, I ran in. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't feel it in these moments, but you know, you, yeah, open for at least for me. Again, I can't speak for other people, but having open discussions about the honest, having honest open discussions about what it was like to have cancer articulating some of those things out loud really does help you know, accept that they are just ha- they they happen cuz you know this is in somewhat loosely related but one of my favorite quotes is true forgiveness is letting go of the hope for a better past and it might seem very it might seem incredibly mystical to say but i needed to i need to and i i've needed to learn to forgive myself for having cancer yeah and part of forgiving myself even though i don't think i ever actually blamed myself but i need to go through this process is is letting go of the hope that i was never diagnosed with cancer that i did do my deployments overseas that i did marry this girl that i did have you know all that stuff and so yeah don't at this point, it's still there's still, and I don't think there will ever stop being emotional strings attached. But it doesn't put me into such despair that it used to. Yeah. Well, it's weird when anything that devastating happens in life, and it's just a very noticeable situation where you see your path like careen to the right <laughs> yeah. when you were supposed to be going straight, and then you always. For a while, anyways, when you're going through something like that, you think about that previous path, and you're like, "Okay, two months ago I was diagnosed with cancer, but like, what if I wasn't? Yeah. What would I be doing in this moment?" And then eventually, you know, I think eventually being able to let that go is extremely important. Yeah. Um, it's it's hard because you are like the what ifs, but then you think like, you know, in your day to day, you're making all these little decisions that put you on different paths anyways. This was just like a very noticeable, obvious and like horrible one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, well, they don't really, what I think is the, re- the sad reality is, you know, I hate to say it, but you or your wife are probably going to have cancer one day. If you live long my, enough. Yeah. My wife had cancer. See, I didn't even know that. Yeah. And so, yeah. So you've got. You know, we've all got these. That's, and I don't, I don't want to degrade some of the things that people again draw benefit and draw strength from. But when I think of the whole raising, I, w- I wish that they would just change the tagline of raising awareness for cancer. Like, who isn't aware? We're all aware of cancer. Yeah. <laughs> who isn't? Who hasn't been affected by cancer? And I. I like to apply some form of stoicism to this part of my story because, yeah, I had cancer at a young age when it really was inconvenient. But just give it 30 more years and almost everyone that I'm in com- – everyone in my social circle will either have cancer or be or super close to it. Be very close to somebody who's had it. So I just – I'm just ahead of the game. Yeah. And so um, – it's, it's you know it it is it, it is tough sometimes, and I do still have moments where some things come rushing back to me. Where you know, for the longest time after chemotherapy, 
this sounds so weird, but I couldn't watch Parks and Recreation. Like, I, like again, another Pavlovian thing, because when my mom, uh, who is beyond a superwoman, she spent, you know, all, all this enti- these entire six months in a hospital room basically watching her son almost die. And to pass the time, we would watch Parks and Rec. And, <laughs> you know, so the theme song to Parks and Rec, I, and I'm... And I'm very, very serious. The first time I tried to watch Parks and Rec after chemotherapy, and it was probably about a year after being in chemo, and I heard the theme song, I immediately shut my laptop. And yeah. I was like, no, this, this, no, I cannot, I can't deal with this. Yeah. And so, you know, those, those, those very visceral memories are always going to be there but the reaction that i have to them is definitely changing yeah definitely man i mean that'll always bring up some sort of feelings you know um so how long were you in the hospital and and at the same time like were you in a daze this whole time i mean was it i have to imagine you were in a daze but i'm also sure some things really like stood out (sighs) so a short answer i was definitely i was in the hospital for I, I my chemotherapy was six months in duration and i was in the hospital for over 90 percent of those six months whether it was because i was going through physical chemo or i had liver failure i had pneumonia i had MRSA and you know, just again you don't just get cancer you yeah. get a buffet yeah. of shit yeah. thrown at you and uh it probably isn't the, the answer you were looking for, but one of the memories I have is towards the end of chemotherapy. So I'm being treated in a military hospital. And, I'm, and for six months, I pretty much occupied the same room. And I, be, I began to notice a lot of the room at, after, you know, after you get adjusted to a lot of painkillers, you, you do come out of that haze. And so I was, I was in this hospital room and I w- there wasn't really any subject we were talking about that because my aunt and my mom were there that we were talking about that kind of related to uh, being in the military but I in one way or another I was able to allude to in the conversation how the there's 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 protocols in the military that sometimes don't need to be followed and w- the greatest example was that staring across from me on the wall was one of those laminated sheets of like you know bullet points of how to give cpr first aid you know pretty big poster size kind of thing so that's on the wall but over it is a clock (laughs) and so i'm thinking to myself at some point somebody had to come in and install either the poster or the clock and realize (laughs) that this is not you know you can't read the poster anymore if I put the clock here or I can't read the poster if I put the poster underneath the clock but the person was no rules are rules yeah it goes here and so (laughs) that's one of the vivid memories um but yeah I I would say a lot of it was definitely a haze whether it was again because of the drugs or because it were they were thoughts that I would never say that I repressed but I definitely decided I don't need to think about these right now yeah and so and yeah. you know you don't think about a thought for 
two and a half, three years, and then when you do try to recall it, you can't recall all the details. But yeah, yeah. There's some pretty. There's some pretty. Uh, there's definitely some very vivid memories that I can recall that are are hard to explain Um, the way that I was given chemo was I had a port I had a device that was implanted into my chest and it was an artificial IV line that just ran directly to my heart um, and that would give chemo to the rest of my body but because they're the chemo chemicals um, can't cross the blood brain barrier um, and for a long for a big for the first part of it they thought that the cancer had actually spread to my brain so I actually had a device planted into my brain as well that where they would have to deliver chemo directly into my brain and so if you can imagine this really really tiny medical device that was probably like an inch deep into my brain when they were to when they were going to give chemo uh, when they were going to give deliver chemo to my brain there's only such a finite amount of liquid that your brain can actually hold so they would actually have to take liquid out like brain they would have to take brain fluid out so that they could put the same amount of chemo in but the first few times for whatever reason they weren't able to draw any fluid out and so they just had to force Ugh. some of this fluid in and in it wasn't that much. It was, if you can, like, conservatively, let's say, the size of a shot glass. Jeez. The amount of liquid in a shot glass. But still, man. Still small. In a small, confined area? That still stands as one of the most horrendous pains I've ever felt. Because from the first drop, I could feel almost as... It, it felt as if my whole skull was just breaking apart from the inside and so physically that was really tough but emotionally it was just as tough because where i was sitting at on the edge of the bed and as i as the doctor was giving me the chemo and i looked up and there was i could see my reflection in a mirror and that was probably my first dehumanizing experience was seeing this like leash i guess device you know this this medical device coming out of my brain with a syringe attached to it and just really catching like what the fuck is going on uh that one yeah that i definitely that one had me that one had me crying um Who's putting a mirror in there? <laughs> yeah. Hey, do you want to look at this? It's like, dude, I don't even want to see the the dentist tools going yeah. into my mouth. You know well, what I mean? Well, it wasn't like a hand mirror, and like I said, it was it was a hospital room, so it was a yeah. It was but a, still, yeah. I I I unnecessary. Probably mirror. the same person who was putting the clock over the poster. <laughs> Sorry, man, I gotta do this. <laughs> you, you know, UCMJ oh, regulation, whatever says mirrors must be present in every room. Oh man, I yeah, that has to be one. That sticks out when you think back to it. Yeah, there's that. There's, I, I, I the more I dig into it, I definitely could give out more details. But yeah. the uh, the other ones, like I said, are a little bit more tied to what was going on inside the environment outside of cancer, and mainly to deal with the relationship that I was in. And, yeah, you know, I won't. Again, I don't want to get into territory of of degrading this person because. 
part of this process of forgiveness is also having to understand that there's no template for how to deal with cancer, whether you have it or, or yeah. you know, and you would know this from, you know, I'm not, I don't know when your wife was diagnosed, how far along you're in the relationship you guys were, but you're not given a brochure of like, okay, here, this is how you handle it as a spouse or a significant other. And so it's taken, I would say, a big part of this process to be able to talk to you right now without really being needing, needing to curl up into an emotional Yeah, wall no, man. Is also forgiving and, 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 you know, letting go of the hope of a better past and letting go of the hope that this person might have behaved differently. Yeah. Um, and some of the things that they said, yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty scarring, but it's also, I, it, I'm also understanding now or would like to think that I'm understanding that it was pretty hard for them too. And yeah. I don't think there's there's some there's still not an excuse for their behavior, but it's also I know I know you weren't doing it intentionally. Yeah. So well so kind of like moving on the up and up. Let's do it. <laughs> what what let's uh, do it. So you when did you start getting like I guess good news, quote unquote? Uh well like where it was like, hey, the drugs are working, like Yeah, well it was after after like the halfway point, it was, I think at first I was given the worst news probably. Yeah, like if you think in like the first few days, it was like, hey, you're probably gonna die. All right, cool. Let yeah. me sign my papers. And then the next, you know, so over the six months, maybe the first two months were still, maybe let's call it, you know, fifty fifty sixty forty, you know, sixty chance that I'll survive kind yeah. of thing. But you know, you're like, hey, you know, might still whatever. Um, and then, you know, as you keep going on, by the end, it was like, yeah, you're going to be fine. Okay. And so, yeah, so that was good. But then it was kind of like as you're as I'm coming out, and I don't want to keep us in this valley, but as I'm coming out and the picture is starting to look a little bit more brighter for those who care about me because I'm going to make it, for me, I'm starting to, at this point, this relationship has ended. And at yeah. this point, I'm definitely aware of I'm living my life three hours at a time. When's my next pain drug? Uh, or pain shot and so it was very it was it was a a lackluster uh, effort on my part to actually continue living yeah it was a fine why are we doing this like I'll do it there was one day where I had a very terse conversation with one of my doctors because I was just being I was just being an asshole and it was a, it was a, it was a very personal conversation of why 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 did you do this like you should have just let me die like that's what i wanted and uh and so i would say so good news as far as medical yeah. diagnoses is concerned that started to happen let's say like halfway through um personally good news really didn't start happening until so I, I was declared in remission in May. I would say personally good news didn't really start happening until like September because at this point, you know, you're, you're thrown through the blender of chemo, the, whatever you, whatever analogy you want to use of being just torn to shreds, you're thrown into it and then you're thrown out 
and you're just at a loss of like, what do I do now? Yeah. Because I'm, you know, is there any, do I mean, do they have any advice or they, guidance or are they giving you like a therapist or what? Like, I definitely had a therapist okay. and he sucked. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just admit this one. There was, oh man, it was, I, so yeah, so my daily habit or my daily routine after this was wake up, wake up. Cause at this point, I have formulated this idea in my head that it's a me against everyone as far as my body is concerned of like, there's no, it's, it's a very dualistic mindset of, oh, my body, you thought you could play these games with me. I'll show you. Yeah. Let me treat you like shit. Now, you know, that's yeah. the, like, you would think that I would come out of this, like, you know, and I am a much healthier person now, but you would think that I would, would have come out of this trying to treat my body like a temple. Like, no, this place is a fucking dump yeah like what what trash can i put in this body to punish it for what it just did to me and so i would my daily routine was basically wake up after being incredibly hungover drink a little bit more take some more pain medicine um to kind of just like even out try to go work out try to go run get frustrated that i couldn't run 100 yards come back just start drinking um and then Go and then I would say mid afternoon was my like cry time because yeah. what you know, the, the antidepressants and everything that they would have me on and everything would all of a sudden really start to take effect. And it was basically, if you can imagine, so I would be riding this emotional roller coaster in the morning where I would I could feel the depression coming on and it would say, like, okay, here it is, like, this is the sadness, and it's just it's that crushing. All I want to do is lay on the ground, depression. And as soon as I would get to the point where I would feel like I'm about to cry and I would actually want to cry and I would want to have that emotional release, then all of a sudden the antidepressants would kick in and it would just, the wave would just crest back and it would just slow back. And it was a daily cycle and I wouldn't ever really get to cry like I wanted to, but I would definitely just be so torn up, definitely just at a loss of what I was going to do with my life, all these things for the couple of months. And I, the reason why I say the psychiatrist sucked is because I went to him and he was military. It was a military doctor, uh, a meaning that he was, I saw him through the military. Um, I don't know if he was actually military himself, but I'm sitting in the chair talking to him, begging, because at this point I've also, I've also started to pick up boxing again, um, literally so that I could just get punched in the face. Yeah. I, I just start, I start doing, I, my, my physical fitness is starting to come back uh, eventually, but I've, I, I really only signed up for boxing because again, I hated my body and I just wanted to break it. And so I would go spar or I would go box with people and I would, they would just beat the shit out of me. And so I'm sitting in this chair in this psychiatrist's office with black eyes because I've just been taking it in my Marine uniform and he's taking notes on his computer and I'm detailing all this stuff to him and I'm telling him like I'm having, you know, these terrible thoughts. I'm having really, you know, I'm, I'm going to really dark places in my mind. I'm doing, you know, I'm treating my body like shit. I'm drinking all this, all this stuff. And he's just taking notes and he's, not I don't want to say being that engaged 
And and I and then I get to this point where I ask him, I said, can we please change my medicine? Can I please change my antidepressants? They're not working. And I've been on them now for months. Yeah. And he pauses and he looks at me and he just says, no, they're working. You just don't realize it yet. And I'm I, like, dude, look at me. Look I, at me. <laughs> I just walked out. Wow. I just man. walked out. I, That's I, so crazy. I couldn't believe it. Um. You're telling him like, hey man, I'm getting to the point where I'm about to feel feelings, which I know I need to do yeah. and process, and then they kick in and he and wouldn't then, change them. That's crazy, man. Yeah, it was that was upsetting. And so, again, not to keep us in the valley. So September comes. Windy. Um, so I know where the story kind of goes, I guess. Yeah. And so you do this crazy horse race. Well, like that does, was that part of the healing? Like, uh, well, when so, did that idea come? I guess. Well, so September comes and I've moved out of Virginia Beach and I'm living in DC now and I and I'm really treating it as a fresh start. Like my hair is starting to grow back. Um, I'm I'm able to actually run more than a mile. I'm I'm still don't feel normal, but I'm like, hey, there's a chance. Yeah. And so, like a new scenery, new environment, just finally. It feels like things are are turning around for me, and it was one of my Navy friends who turned me on to this idea of doing this car race because he was like, "Hey man, this is, seems like something right up your alley." I'm like, "Oh yeah, it's totally awesome. This seems like a great way to quote unquote celebrate being done with cancer and you know being done with the military." And it's just it's called the Mongol Rally, and it was. Uh, uh, it's slated as this car race across Europe um, where there's only two or three rules where the first one is you, you your car has to be less than a, your car engine size has to be less than something really obnoxiously small and um, you're not allowed to really receive any outside help like the whole intention of this race even though it's not really a race is to just put yourself into uh, situations that make for the best cocktail or podcast stories. Yeah, where your your car is broken down in the middle of <laughs> Turkmenistan, yeah. and you don't know, speak Turkmenistan or anything yeah. like that. And uh, and so I, I decided, you know, my dad's really into cars, and so I uh, just call my and this, I love my dad, and because uh, I, I call him up. Uh, I'm in, I remember was at, I was at a grocery store, and I've been mulling over this idea for the past few days. And because I don't know shit about cars, like I can change a tire, but I don't, <laughs> I don't know shit about cars. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, like, hey, this would be a really cool bonding experience with my dad. Um, and so I call him up. I'm in the middle of the grocery store, and I'm like, hey, do you want to do this car race across Europe with me? And he goes, well, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, no, there's no enthusiasm to it, but there's also no reluctance yeah. in it. So you're just like, okay, very Irish Catholic. And uh, so, so I sign up for that, and so I'm still drinking at this point and so later that night or that evening i'm i'm at my friend's house in dc and i'm showing her on her on the laptop this race the the race page for the mongol rally and uh the this is not the only race that this organization is putting on there's actually a there's a drop down menu of all these other ones and so when i'm looking on this web page or i think when i google search when i try to google search mongol rally and it auto completes whatever and I just hit enter, um, it actually takes me to this other page called the Mongol Derby, which is another race by the same organization. And at this point, with my friend, I'm like half a bottle of wine 
into the evening. And so I'm, you know, I'm in that good, <laughs> like that good yeah. middle zone of I'm feeling confident, you know, what's this curious. And uh, so the Mongol Derby, is, the, uh, the headline across the front of the website is, uh, I think, you know, the world's t- toughest horse race or something. Uh, oh, what's this? <laughs> this seems stupid. <laughs> and so you're like, I know mu- as much about horses as, as I, I do, do about, about cars. cars. <laughs> yeah, like, this so, would be interesting. And so for the, the car race was really exciting because all it took was $500. You just had to pay $500. Um, to register and that was it but this horse race you had to write i think two somewhat 500 letter 500 word essays let's say uh, to get accepted into it and i just am thinking like fuck it let's do this and so again i'm i'm in i'm in that creative zone with enough wine in me and I just write whatever nonsense i write about and but i was i was incredible because i the first question the first question was, uh, I think, what makes you think you're tough enough to do this race? And I'm thinking to myself, are they fucking good? Like, I felt <laughs> insulted. <laughs> I felt insulted that some foreign company yeah. based in London had the wherewithal to ask me <laughs> if I was tough enough. And so I, I really think I just wrote l- less than 100 words, and I just maybe said... Um, I'm a Marine infantry officer who had cancer. I don't know anything about riding horses, but I'm pretty sure I can do this. <laughs> and it's, and so, I'm probably being a little bit more uh, Hollywoodish with that, but so it was definitely something. I was very honest that I didn't know shit about horses. Yeah. That was I can definitively say I had made sure to write <laughs> that the only time I'd ever ridden a horse was at like a birthday party when I was seven or something, <laughs> and so. The next day, I'm at uh, I'm at my internship at the NIH, and I get a call from my phone, and the caller I obviously get a call on my phone, but the caller ID is, is you know some London thing, and it's these people that run this run these races, and they they've called me and they basically just say, you know, Adam, you know, we read your essay, we read your application, we think it's incredible. Um, we recognize that you don't have any horse riding experience, <laughs> but this race isn't until you know, maybe about a year from now. Uh, if you're willing to learn to ride, we'll, we'll extend an offer to you. And I'm like, fuck it, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> like, of course, not thinking at any point, how am I gonna, let me, let me call you back. Let me, let me decide. It's like, okay, let's yeah. do this. Yeah, <laughs> I'll man. figure this one out. Yeah. <laughs> <And> so, um, <laughs> So it's probably not as soon, but that day that I hang up the phone and I start to realize I need to start learning how to ride a horse, I do what I could only think of and I just go to Yelp and I try to, I don't even Google, I try to Yelp because I'm thinking Yelp is at least going to turn me on to reviews for stables or whatever. And so I'm just randomly calling, <laughs> you know, eventually I do search Google, but I'm just randomly calling uh you know, whatever contacts I can find on the internet for anybody who owns a horse. And it takes three or four tries before somebody's just like, you are totally barking up the wrong tree. And they, they point me in the right direction. I get in contact with the people who, uh, you know, have become my extended horse family. Yeah. Um, which being out here in Colorado, even though there's a lot of horses out here, 
and a lot of people that own horses and that yeah this like scenery is beautiful out here no one has anything on what these people had in Virginia um, sitting on almost 300 acres in the Shenandoah Valley true I mean talk about a trail runner's dream yeah just beautiful trails on the you know they own if if there's ever been a quintessential you know like I want to call it maybe mid 18th century home where you know, hardwood floors colonial style housing and they just got horses running around the property the perfect like yeah. pasture for them too oh, awesome yeah yeah that was them and I so I'm very thankful that they took me in but it was an honest God showing up day one all right which end goes where <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> and so <laughs> like not knowing how to even get on a horse <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah it was <laughs> it was uh I, I I would say the most humbling moment I had was when I definitely tried to act like I could at least put a saddle on the horse and I just absolutely had the thing on backwards and it was you know I did that same thing with my first daughter's diaper <laughs> like the night she was born I'm like trying to put on a diaper and I'm like how does this thing work what are the instructions for this what, are, what is this doing <laughs> but so how how important in that moment though yeah. is having a goal yeah so, you know because i always think like if people are listening to the podcast and it might not be as like an intense situation as what you found yourself in right but if they're stuck in some sort of habit that they want to change i think personally like setting some crazy goal that's terrifying probably <laughs> and you know nothing about is like yeah. exhilarating almost absolutely um and you're absolutely right. It was, it it was inc- tremendously important for me to have this goal uh, that was ba- that was probably a little bit less articulate, but it was still very tangible. And it was just to reclaim the me that that I felt like I was before, which was the guy who would sign up to do a horse race yeah. without knowing how to ride a horse or anything like that. And even though I didn't go into it with this goal of I want to win it I want to come first place it was I, w- I want to accomplish it and yeah. so just like in running or in a lot of things the goal didn't need to be the top tier thing it didn't need to be this uh, almost out of reach you know platform that I would never actually be able to stand upon it was basically this is something that is far enough away to be a challenge but yet close enough to keep me engaged day to day and especially with something being a year out and the fact that you know i had to pay fifteen thousand dollars to go do this horse race so i'll so i also took on the goal of fundraising um yeah it was it was incredibly important because it it could have quickly turned into after the honeymoon period of excitement wore off it quickly could have turned into a well now i'm just going to make excuses yeah. for why i can't do this anymore and i'm just not learning how to ride a horse or i'm too busy with this and i need to focus on going back to school it was like no i'm committed to this now yeah and there's no backing out and i uh, you know i i need to finish what i started 
I need to, because that's what I felt like a lot of my military experience was robbed of, was I kept setting out to do these things to, to serve, over, overall just to serve, Yeah, you know, on a lesser scale to try and become a Navy SEAL, uh, on another lesser scale to be, a, you know, a, depl- a, a combat experienced Marine, Marine infantry officer. I set out to do these things and I never got to do it. And I just wanted to finish what I started. And so I I needed this victory and yeah, this victory just happened to come into the, come in the form of something a little bit more obscure. Yeah. But it's incredibly important to constantly have goals that, like I said, are, are so far away that they make you be outside your comfort zone, but yet they're close enough to where you still actually feel like you can, achieve them yeah definitely man so how do you train for a horse race (laughs) oh man oh i'm just imagining you just riding around in circles for hours yeah well (laughs) you know i I would go on these trails because again at this point i have hit the ground running with i am going to reclaim my life i'm sleeping three hours a night because I'm living in D.C., I love I, and, and I'm, I'm falling in love with D.C. At this point, I've stopped drinking. Um, I've gotten back into skydiving. Um, I'm I'm back to running, but not nearly where I'm at now. Um, I started taking flight le- like pilot license lessons. I was trying to get my I, I did like 12 hours behind trying to get my pilot license. I'm working nights at the most yuppie Georgetown bar <laughs> as a security, as a bouncer, just because I figured, well, I don't need to sleep anymore. <laughs> like, why not get paid not to sleep? Yeah. Um, Dave Chappelle shows up one night. You know, I'm, no I'm, way. I'm really trying to, uh, you know, I guess this is where it's that coming up out of the darkness. I'm really trying to 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 prolong this period of positivity and i and i because i'm kind of convinced like if i go to sleep it'll all go away so why not just not sleep and so um like i said i I stopped drinking at this point because i've got so much on my schedule um that i really am rationalizing i just don't have time to be hung over as much as i want to still treat my body like garbage because i still am at war with my body and i still want to and i want to now live life to the fullest kind of thing I'm realizing, like, well, I can't go fly a plane hungover. That's, yeah. That's a waste of money. <laughs> it's a huge influence because yeah. I remember as soon as I started more seriously getting into running, and I was never, like, a huge drinker anyways. Yeah. But as soon as I started getting serious into running, it'd be like, man, Saturday morning I got a 10-mile run planned. Yeah. Like, I, I can't go out. Like, I can go out and maybe have a beer or yeah. two, but, like, I can't stay out till like, 1 in the morning or I'm not going to achieve what I want to achieve. Exactly. And – it wasn't, and I will say, working nights as a, as a, I won't, I don't want to say bouncer, but as. <laughs> Did working, you let Dave Chappelle into the bar? <laughs> I made him show him. I didn't believe his ID. Thought it was a fake. <laughs> I thought he was Rick James. For his oh yeah, totally. I, yeah. <laughs> the, the, uh, so I will say that if you're gonna decide to not drink, I if you have the opportunity to go work at a bar, that. It's only going to strengthen your <laughs> resolve to not drink because you're just going to watch. You're just going to see what drunk actually is on a from know, a different perspective, nightly basis. Yeah. All this stuff. So that was you know. So it worked out, and it was and it was a really fun. Like yeah, I worked. It was a it was a bar, but it was actually 
the people that worked there were incredibly generous and it wasn't it was it was a situation where i kind of felt a little sad to leave it but i had to and but back to actually training for a horse race it's just like wow you train for well maybe not just like how you train but what i was talking about earlier with what i think is the best training tool for somebody who's going to go do their first marathon on top of yes running and you know uh, cross training with weights and and all those things that you can put that you could probably find on runnersworld.com um, is also just get on your feet just be yeah. on your feet because that's you know when you get to mile 22 whatever or 20 23 of a, of a marathon yeah your muscles hurt but it's like it's the bone hurt that really stops you yeah and the best way to counteract the bone hurt is being used to it yeah just be on your feet up where you know like i said i wear my backpack that's a little way down and i try to stand as much as i can throughout the day and so for a horse race it was like well i first off i got to get to the point where i'm not getting thrown off the horse anymore yeah like once let's set that goal yeah <laughs> let's set that low goal that i can achieve the 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 trot the canter the gallop and once i'm there then we can work on actually being on the horse for a longer duration of time um, but yeah, I just kind of just became, I just need to be on a horse yeah. and it was, it's really tough because the horses that I ended up racing on. So this horse, if I didn't explain before, and I think we just kind of assumed that it was, the, it, it was common knowledge. This race is a thousand kilometer race across Mongolia. Um, it's definitely not a, <laughs> it's, it's painted as, it's definitely painted as the world's toughest horse race. And it's very, it's painted like, uh, something out of Hidalgo. Mm-hmm. If you've ever seen that movie. Um, a little bit less austere, but still kind of very basic and primitive to where you're supposed to, over over the duration of the race that lasts 10 days or so, you're supposed to change horses every 30 miles um, because you're supposed to recreate the Genghis Khan postal system. And, okay. Yeah, and, and it does have cowboy elements to it where you're, you know, you're at, at night because the... the I think by the time I had done the race, let's say they've done it for 10 years. In the first year or two, somebody actually died. Um, I, but I think it was because somebody got lost and they just... They couldn't find them. Yeah, they just get lost. In, you get lost in the back... I don't even know if you could call back country because everything's back country Mongolia. Yeah. But you get lost in the countryside of Mongolia, you're kind of fucked. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, this person died, however, for, uh, for whatever, really unfortunate for whatever reasons. But it, but by the time I'd done the race, there were a few rules to mitigate that risk, which were we all to wear GPS trackers. Okay. There was a ride cutoff time where no matter where you were at, let's say it's like 9 p.m. at night, after 9 p.m., you don't ride anymore. Um, but where you decide to camp down could be either at one of the vet check stations uh, or you could try to, which was like one of the most, which was one of the coolest things of this whole race was you would, you could either just camp out underneath the stars with your horse. That's cool. Or you could go try and camp or go sleep with a family, which I did a few times. Which yeah, was, I remember you telling me about that. Which was really cool. Just which, going up to a door and knocking on it and being like, hey. Yeah, like giving them my little laminated uh, index card of like translations. Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. just looking like really cowboyish and be like, hey, do you mind if I stay here? Like, they're cool. I mean, they're Mongolians. They're kind of dicks, but they're yeah. actually kind of cool. I, they, I, if, you, if you ever meet a Mongolian, <laughs> there's a reason why they like conquered almost the entire known world at the time is because they're pretty fierce people. Yeah. There was one story... <laughs> 
uh, that I can remember. I'm just imagining one Mongolian listening to this podcast, like, how dare he? Well, the the funny thing, well, the funny thing is, is when I was interning at the NIH, there was a a researcher uh, who is from Kazakhstan, who's right, is neighboring to Mongolia. So he's got, he he knows a lot of, he's got a lot of Mongolian cultural culture in him. And he, I love him, but he's a dick too. <laughs> like, like he's the type of person where if you're if you need to stop talking, he's gonna tell you you, you should stop talking right yeah. now. But he's he, very like to the point. Yeah, he's awesome. And so uh, there was the one story I'm thinking of, but I think is kind of one of one of my two favorite Mongolian stories was. I'm riding up with two other riders because it's an international race. So there's people. How many people are doing it? Thirty-five or thirty-seven. Okay. And so, I'm there. If you can imagine, there's three of us. Uh, one of them is from Mexico. The other one, she's from uh, somewhere in your in London. Let's call it. And you got me, and uh, we ride up to this hut, this Mongolian hut, uh, basically, or an Urtu, um, and at we're we're 30 yards away or whatever and as we're going up we're kind of trying to like figure out hey who's gonna go be the who's gonna who's gonna roger up and go ask the family if we could stay there and thankfully the mexican that was with us he was just such a social guy he was like oh i got this yeah. like awesome we don't have to do, go up and talk to these random people so as he, so he goes into the or two with the family and he's talking to him while me and this girl we're still sitting on our horses and as we're sitting outside the or two there's this Mongolian, you know, young man who, uh, and th- this, we're the, this is at the beginning of the race. So we're a little bit closer to civilization. So there's, he's got this like Honda Civic out in front of it's, we're still in the landscape, but he's just, he's got a car basically is what I'm trying to say. And as me and this girl, were sitting on the horse. Um, he, con- <laughs> he kind of like walks out of the picture for a second and then comes back with a goat I'm like, okay, you know, go, like the goats are rampant in this country. And he, then he just just so casually flips the goat over onto its back, takes a knife out, and just cuts its throat. And I'm like, this is, hap- this is happening in the middle of, like, matter of seconds. Yeah. Where, you know, you can't even react quick enough to, like, what's that goat doing? Why is it on his back? What's he doing with that knife? Why is what? he staring <laughs> yeah, me down? Yeah. <laughs> and so he does it, and... and <laughs> And I'm, like he's he's doing it so casually, and the goat's just like you know f- convulsing because it's so kind of I guess bleeding out. And after uh, me and this girl, we're just shocked, kind of oh okay, this is you know we're not afraid, but we're like this is new. And then he just and then he just opens up the the trunk to his car, takes the goat, throws it in the back of the car, and, just, and we're like, what the hell is he doing with this goat? <laughs> so that that was uh. But they were there. They were actually one of the best. They were uh, they were a very very generous family. They um, you showed. said you told me a while ago like traditionally, yeah. if someone's coming to their door seeking like aid and assistance, yeah, because they're they're still a very nomadic culture, and that's what they were founded on was this n- nomadic you know battle supremacy supremacy of being able to travel the live off the land. And help when, get help when you needed to cut from your neighbor. Now it's not as uh, liberal minded as I think you would assume. Maybe like a commune in Oregon or Colorado would be, but it is a very much okay. You're a guest in our home. We won't turn you away. Yeah. Um, 
the one of the <laughs> later on in the race uh, at this I've gotten I've gotten thrown off the fucking horse so many times I it turns out that I've got like these broken ribs but I don't know I've broken these ribs at this point I just because I because you know I've been, I've never had diagnosed broken ribs yeah um I've definitely like bruised them yeah you know yeah. from boxing from football <clears throat> from whatever you've had them and you're just like man this really hurts but you know I wasn't getting X-rays during this race or anything and so uh, this is this is halfway through the race now. And I'm now on my own riding, um, and I stay at this one. I stay with this one family one night where it was. It was. I wouldn't call it a complete opposite, but it was a very the the first occasion of staying with a family was so homely. Like I said, they were so generous. They like brought out these cookies for us. It was beautiful. They they actually cleared out their side of the Urtu, and it was just very hospitable. The second one I go to, it was just like I think these people are gonna rob me, um, you know. It got to, and so because at this point I'm pretty deep into the Mongolian wilderness, yeah. And I, I you know, I ride up to the house on my own, and it's all rainy out, and I'm just fucking tired. And I, I give my like translation card to the patriarch of the family. And he reads it, and he's like, "Okay, yeah, you know, he's not enthusiastic about it, but he's like, yeah, come on in." And so, as I'm about to cross the threshold into their home, um, I see this kid who's probably 11 years old, completely naked, he's sitting in the door frame, uh, and you could you could just tell from his physical appearance that, like, yeah, he's disabled. And, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, this is it's kind of weird. Yeah, but it was it was a significant disability and yeah but i'm you know i'm not try, obviously not trying to stare not trying to pay attention to it and so i kind of just like step over this kid and he's completely naked and i step over this kid with my saddle and i'm inside and the, and the dad is trying to show me where to put my stuff and i've maybe you know walked four or five feet and it's kind of like out of a horror movie i can't you know i you, know, you just quickly glance around and you just see that this kid now is just crawling around the floor and he's got like and his and he's got what you know I call like lobster eyes going on where his eyes are looking in different directions and his you know his legs aren't working and and he's I don't know what he's like saying I don't know if he's speaking Mongolian or if he's just speaking yeah nonsense and I don't know why but the first thought that runs through my head is holy shit this kid has like polio this kid has like tuberculosis or something. And so, you know, I'm standing in there in the door. So this family's been nice enough to like let me come stay yeah. inside. And I'm seeing this kid. I'm thinking like, wow, like what if I, I, I just had, I just had cancer. Yeah. The last thing I want to do is now get polio. Yeah. And so I'm trying to think like, is this something, is this is so, it's just terrible to admit out loud. But, you know, I'm thinking like, is this contagious? Like, I don't know what's going on right now. Yeah. And so I, as I'm standing there with my saddle and everything, and the dad's like trying to tell me to put my saddle down where and where I sleep, and I'm and I'm trying to now tell him like, you know what, I'm good, thanks. Oh. Uh, I'm actually <laughs> I'm just gonna sleep outside if that's okay. I just want to make sure my horse is okay. And so I kind of I'm like backing away with my saddle, trying yeah. to like awkwardly e exit the conversation. And you know he's like, no, 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 you know, doing all that stuff. And so I, I do end up uh, staying staying the night. And um, like I said, I've got these broken ribs, and so all I want to do after my after I've made sure my horse has been taken care of because 
that's for the length of time that I've been riding a horse at this point, let's call it a year. I, you know, you, you hear stories of how the horse whisperer and how people have these relationships with horses. I had just never seen it happen. I was just, I just didn't get it. Yeah. Um, Cause it seemed like every horse that I'd either, you know, when I was riding back in Virginia, the, that horse was a dick <laughs> or, you know, that horse just wasn't, you know, we weren't clicking and these horses in Mongolia, they're pretty damn wild. Yeah. Um, they're as wild as you can get and still put a saddle on them. So I'm not making friends with these horses. At these horses are like, man, the only thing, he's just not whispering to us. What? Yeah. If he started whispering, we'd be fine. There's <laughs> there's one I really would love to see this footage at one point where I'm riding a horse and this thing is just not paying attention to me and I'm really concerned at how fast we're going and the fact that I might get thrown off and I'm trying to like pull on the rein to get him to slow down, and if you can imagine, like if there's ever a anthropomorphized like human being into a horse, this this horse was what I would call would be like a, a, a fucking Chicago Bear linebacker. Like this thing had like no neck. Right, or lack of horses. Yeah, <laughs> and so I'm just like yanking on this rein, trying to get it to slow down, and so. Uh, one of the camera crews is rolling up next to us, and I'm trying to like shoo them away because the horses are herded with motorcycles sometimes. So any engine noise just causes them to go insane. And so I'm like, get the fuck away! I'm like this horse is out of control right now, and you're just making it worse. And of course, they're like, no, we want to film this. <laughs> and so they come pulling up, and this is the footage that I want to see, where basically I've got my right hand on the right rein. Uh, of like just right next to, I'm basically fish hooking this horse uh, on the right side of his mouth, and I've got my left hand on his head, and I'm using it as like a pivot point, and I'm basically turning this horse's head at least 90 degrees, like almost bending back to me, and the horse is just like, fuck it, we're gonna keep going, and I'm like, okay, I've made this situation so much worse. Because now this horse can't even see where we're going. Yeah. All it can see is this car. And it's probably really pissed off at me for, for trying to break its neck. Yeah. So I so I haven't developed this relationship with these horses yet. And so then I get to this this evening when I'm staying out and I'm this horse though, by far, I fell in love with his horse. It was it was something to where I feel like we had this mutual understanding because it was at the end of the day when I got to this vet check station and I chose it and I could see like he was not too happy that he, I was going to ride him. But I feel like we had and this. This is where it just sounds so, so awful. And I and I know I'm going to sound so weird, but we I, I feel like I, I entered into this non-spoken agreement with this horse. Like, OK, <laughs> you don't try and throw me off. And I won't ride the shit out of you <laughs> like yeah. you if you you know, if we go fast, but you are cool, I'll make sure that I'm not try, trying to break you off to get to where I need to go. And I, I, I want to do this story justice because this is this is my absolute favorite part. This was my absolute favorite part of the race, and something that I really hope I'll never forget. It's raining out at this point. I've got my whatever, however many day beard. You know, I haven't showered and yeah i'm i'm in my cowboy mode <laughs> i am just i've been sleeping out you know i'd be either sleeping out under the stars or i've been sleeping in random mongolian like mongolian families homes i'm feeling like a cowboy um it's 
you know the you know that perfect weather when you're about to go for a run where it's really cool but it's also kind of warm and yeah. there's like a fog and everything yeah that's what was going on and i'm pretty deep like i said into mongolian countryside and i come riding up i come riding up this hill and like i said i had this what i feel like is this non-spoken agreement with this horse to where it's actually listening to me to where i'm riding and i'm thinking oh I want to go this way because the whole way you're navigating through this race is with a GPS. There's no, it's not marked. There's no like trail this way kind of thing. It's just basically point A, point B, get to where you need to go. And so I'm think, so I'm just trying to navigate and, and I, sw- and I know that the horse was actually picking up on my slight adjustments, but I'm just, I, I felt like, cause I'm looking off in the distance and I'm seeing a break in the tree line and I'm thinking, that's where I want to go. And all of a sudden the horse is just going that way. And then I'm thinking like, okay, what's going, like what, what was that behind me? Because there's, there's, there were also stories and again, not to be dramatic. There were also stories at this point in the race of wild animals, like wolves and bears. So I'm also kind of like, what was that movement? And there's also, and this is really, this is really unfortunate. Um, There are, and I know it happened for my year, there were cases of people being assaulted, mainly girls. Yeah. Um, so I'm also aware of like, Jeez. am I going to have to throw down with some Mongolians? Yeah. They're going to kick my ass because yeah. they're Mongolians yeah. and I'm just a pussy. <laughs> and so, and I'm wearing tights. <laughs> and yeah. Like, and so, and so, uh, yeah, I just, the, the, the peak, uh, the climax of this story is I'm, I'm basically at the, at, I'm on top of this hill it's it's drizzling there's a fog settling in on the the countryside for as far as you can see and i'm just on this horse that i felt like got me and i'm feeling like this horse is is just understood hey all right let's just get this done with and i really when i when i had to change that horse at the next vet check station i really had a a moment of contemplation of like how do I keep this thing? Like I yeah. loved that yeah. horse. You, you're describing like flow state. Oh, absolutely. Like if you're, if you're an athlete and you're in flow state, but it's just interesting. Cause you're, you're doing something and you're also, yeah, there's another like organism, another yeah. beast like that. You're it's also like, dealing with. It's like avatar. Yeah. And I like sync up my whatever yeah. braid with yeah. this thing because it, because all of these other horses at this point, like it, all these, all these other horses, they've just decided that they don't want me on their back. So they're throwing me off every yeah. chance they get. This horse was just – it just seemed like he was like, all right, man, I got you. And, I, the yeah. funniest part of the whole thing is like you're not like, this horse thought I was his friend. You're like, no, this horse just put up with me. Yeah. <laughs> it, was um, a, it was a very mutual uh, – like I said, a very mutual agreement of like, okay – you don't be a dick, I don't be a dick. Yeah, that's <laughs> hilarious, man. Well, let's kind of like wrap up there. Yeah. For this time. For this time. The next time we run and then do a podcast. We'll actually, we'll get into. <laughs> like skydiving and yeah. your running races. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man. So. It's been awesome. Dude, it's been great. Yeah, man. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. It's 12. I was just trying to wrap up because yeah. I know you have to go somewhere at 1230. Yeah. So. Thank you. Yeah, man. Thanks right. for coming on. Let's sign off. Alrighty. This is the weird signing off point, <laughs> which I've described before, but it's like, I'm going to stop the podcast, but, but we're still going to be here. We're still recording. <laughs> All right. See you, man. Big thanks to Adam for coming on the show and sharing his story. And really, I mean, 
for being so incredibly open with with your story uh i think it's very important that people who have been through experiences like adam i I think it is incredibly important and powerful that they are completely transparent completely open with the story um because they're experiences that we all can draw something away from and we all can learn something from and and yeah so anyways man thank you (laughs) thanks for coming on the show you're a good dude you're awesome uh like i said in the intro can't wait till we get to hang out again go for a run um you know kind of shoot the shit all that fun stuff (laughs) so yeah uh if you guys are enjoying the like a bigfoot podcast here's a little shout out Adam was the very first person to leave a review for the show on iTunes. So um, that's awesome, man. And to be quite frank, I just like the reviews. I know they do something. They And I was joking with my buddy Brady yesterday. They do something for the show. Uh, <laughs> but on a more personal level, they just, they're just cool. They make me feel good. I just check, I'm checking right now and I actually just found one more review so thank you guys you guys rock but uh yeah they, they make me smile the reviews make me smile they make me make me feel good and uh yeah we're i mean we're gonna keep doing this regardless but uh but yeah if you want to leave a review give me some feedback that would rock uh so yeah and then you can check out all of our episodes on soundcloud itunes all that fun stuff um i will be releasing an episode in the middle of the week next week um, that's going to be kind of a, it's going to be something kind of outside the norm. So essentially I signed up for this crazy stage race in the desert and I've talked about it. I mentioned it a couple times. Uh, and I finally want to give you guys like some information from my perspective and why I signed up, what I'm going to do for training. Um, and I think just to keep me on track with training, we will probably have a few episodes, uh, in the months leading up to this race that kind of highlight you know, what I'm doing to actually train for something I'm incredibly unprepared for. So, so yeah, check that out in the middle of the week and we'll get back at you next time. See ya.